speedily. It is all a matter of perspective. The fact is that there is one reason and only one for writing or reading a biography of Jefferson Davis, and that is his quadrennium as leader of the lost cause. Without this vital element, few, if any, Americans would ever have heard of him or wanted to. Who remembers any of the secretaries of war prior to World War II? How many of the hundreds of senators and congressmen who have served in the past two centuries are truly worthy of biographies? Davis created no significant legislation, and even in the march to secession, he played a secondary role. His years in the war office generated nothing we remember or care about today, other than vaguely held notions that he tried a seemingly whimsical experiment with camels. As for his post-war years, once he left prison, there was nothing to set his life apart from those of the hundreds of thousands of other former Confederates trying to rebuild their lives, nothing but the fact that he had been their president. In short, nothing in this man's life would attract more attention than a thesis or dissertation had he not been chosen to take an oath in Montgomery, Alabama in February 1861. Thus, the preponderance of this biography looks at the four years that followed that oath. As for his pre-war life, it is chiefly important only for what it reveals of the making of the president in 1861, how his attitudes and values developed, and how his character took shape in the fashion that left such a distinctive mark on the Confederacy. It is for this reason that his early years are so important, including the West Point and Mexican War days that distinctively influenced his thinking on military matters. As for his senatorial career, much less space could actually have been devoted to it, for once his ideas and opinions took shape in the 1840s, they rarely, if ever, changed. Indeed, the balance of his political career in the old Union was little more than a constant repetition of those ideas. And as for the opposite end of his life, his years after 1865 have little value outside the contexts of Davis's reflections on the war and of his symbolic role as a leader of the Old South embarking into a new one. In the Civil War years themselves, meanwhile, the first 18 months revealed the development of Davis to the highest point he achieved as a chief executive. By the end of 1862, the decisions, the strategies, the appointments, and the loyalties and antipathies by which he would conduct the balance of the conflict had been set in place. This book is a life, not a life and times. Already substantial, it would be much more so if extensive background were interwoven on every political contest, every campaign or battle, and each of his many personal feuds. Enough has been provided to illuminate either Davis's direct participation or his influence. Similarly, his remarkable wife, Verena Howell Davis, does not spend much time at center stage. By any measure, she was an unusual individual, very much a 20th century woman. But thanks to the limitations of the era in which she lived, she remains important to us today for no reason other than the fact that marriage changed her name to Davis. She exerted considerable influence on him at times, for good and ill. Moreover, as First Lady of the Confederacy, she shared with him, as no other, the burdens of his responsibility, and to the extent that she had an impact on her husband, she appears here. This unusual woman deserves serious study in her own right. A few words are in order about the sources used to write this study. Previous biographies have hardly been used at all, nor are there many references to the wide body of modern literature dealing with Davis. Excellent works have appeared in recent years by scholars like William Cooper, Frank Vandiver, Paul Escott, Ludwell Johnson, and others. However, from the first, the intent in this book has been to work as exclusively as possible from sources contemporary to Davis. Should this portrait, which emerges directly from the man himself and those close to him, uninfluenced by the opinions and theses of other latter-day historians, in large part agree with their own conclusions, it is because we have looked at the same raw materials and drawn the same lessons. 
Similarly, little reliance has been placed on the later memoirs and reminiscences of Davis's associates, for most are unreliable, either tainted by extreme partisanship or expressions of extreme prejudice. Happily, the superabundance of Davis correspondence for so much of his life means that there is little need to rely on other sources for more than corroboration and color. The editors of the Papers of Jefferson Davis Project at Rice University estimate that perhaps 50,000 such pieces of correspondence have been located, with more coming to light continually. Indeed, it is to those editors, Linda Laswell Christ and Mary Seton Dix, that the greatest debt of gratitude is owed, for this massive work could not have been done without them. For more than a year, their hospitality and encouragement have been nothing less than exceptional. They have freely opened their staggering collection of Davis papers from all over the country, almost without reservation, providing the most comfortable of working quarters and the most delightful of companions, all while continuing their own work, which has set such a high standard for documentation.